For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. Washington State's spring black bear hunt continues to be a hot topic. Spoiler alert, the spring hunt is not back on, but things are staying interesting. As you recall, the incomplete State Wildlife Commission had a deadlocked vote of 4-4 to when considering this spring's hunt. Without a majority vote, the hunt was suspended. At the time of the vote, there was an open eastern Washington seat that would, in theory, have prevented a tie, but we don't know if it would have necessarily prevented a no-hunt outcome. Now, however, State Wildlife Commissioner Fred Coons, who has served just shy of one year of a six-year commitment, has announced his resignation from the commission, stating that the, quote, commission is currently stuck in a politicized quagmire. Well, Fred, welcome to America. It's a broad but accurate quote. Coons goes on to say, This is not the kind of environment in which I thrive. I hope that your future appointments to the commission can be better politicians than me, as I am a conservation biologist at heart. Which is a heck of a quote. In fact, I would bet if we were to do a random and blind poll amongst the hunting and angling community, conservation biologist would likely rank a heck of a lot higher than politician if you uh, wanted to select who would be on your game commission. Coons, however, has been criticized for questioning the opinion of state biologists in regards to the spring bear hunt, of which he was a no vote despite the state's opinion that the hunt should be carried out. And, again, when considering a popular Blue Mountain elk hunt in both circumstances, Coons questioned how the data was collected and to which objectives the hunt were looking to serve, biological or social. The commission is appointed by Governor Jay Inslee. 
he now has two seats to fill, and most folks who like to hunt and fish are crossing their fingers that new appointees come from eastern Washington and at least purchase hunting and fishing licenses. This week, we've got Poison, the Feral Cats Arm Race, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week has involved some serious cooking with Chef Kevin Gillespie. Kevin and I teamed up for a future episode of Meat Eater Cooks. On this one, we'll focus on pheasant legs and thighs. We got a quick afternoon walk-in on a friend's property, and we're lucky enough to get a couple of birds. Old Snort has a heck of a nose on her, but after two weeks of big game hunting, really no basic training, followed by another week of me being out at Doug Duran's place, she was like a pheasant-seeking rocket. On this couple-hour walk, she decided to get a week's worth of running in, and let me tell you, she found and flushed birds. We just weren't always there with her. On top of that, instead of bringing birds to hand, or even within five feet of me, she would bring the birds just into eyesight, drop the rooster from her mouth as soon as she made eye contact with me, and then sprint off to go find more. Anytime we would stop, and keep in mind we were filming so there was plenty of stopping, Snort would slide off from heel and flush a bird by herself. Whose fault is this? That would be me. The old joke of what's got two thumbs and needs to start training his bird dog again? <laughs> this guy! <laughs> Fortunately, I'm putting the big game season aside and looking to put some ducks and geese in the freezer, and maybe, if we get on top of it and get real lucky, a late season pheasant or two. Who knows? but we'll be out looking for opportunities, and that's what really matters. It's nice living in a place where there's a seasonal change. I can go skiing, go ice fishing. I have plenty of outdoor opportunity when the hunting season ends, but man, I just don't feel like I got enough. Don't know if you can uh, relate. I will tell you this. You got to look forward to this Meat Eater Cooks episode. Chef Kevin Gillespie is the host. And for pheasant legs and thighs, and probably any other leg and thigh of game birds, the recipe that we cook up is absolutely phenomenal. I would say astounding, and it's truly not that freaking hard. It's just not. It's great, though. That's a cliffhanger for you. Leave some drool on your lips. Moving on. In big news here in the state of Montana, not unlike the Washington story I just mentioned, our state wildlife agency, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, our wildlife commissioners, and the state itself are continually trying to tick off everyone equally, which is what I hope they are actually trying to do, although I do have my doubts from time to time. Everyone is, of course, landowners, public land hunters, private land hunters, outfitters, you, me, in-state hunters, out-of-state hunters, the collective interests in game species. The topic is elk. The general commentary coming from the state is that elk are over-objective in many units here in Montana. This is a social tolerance objective, not a how many elk can the land support or a carrying capacity objective. Proposals have been offered as to how elk numbers can be reduced and how to make the opportunity that a reduction in elk presents equitable amongst the many stakeholders involved in a public resource managed by the state. In what appears to be a short-term victory, one of these proposals in which landowners and those with access to private land 
would be allowed to purchase either sex elk tags in eight hunting districts over the counter, while simultaneously reducing the number of tags available to those without access to private property or public land hunters was removed from the table. Here is a quote in the Montana Free Press. We threw a proposal out that was going to come in front of the commission that was wide open, and it went to opening general licenses for private land and limiting public participation and permits because we wanted to make sure we didn't harvest too many elk in those areas. That really started a firestorm, and I take full responsibility for that. That quote is from Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Director Henry Hank Warsuch. You did hear that right. Again, elk are over-objective in these units, so the proposal was to allow private land only, either sex elk tags, to be widely available while limiting the number of public land permits so as not to kill too many elk. When the director says firestorm, he's right. Many, many comments went up in regards to the threat of the privatization of wildlife here in Montana. This example of favoring private land with opportunity while reducing public land with opportunity under the umbrella of saying we need to reduce elk but not too many is something that should get alarm bells ringing. Killing cow elk is how you control elk populations, so when you issue either sex tags and make them only available to those behind no trespassing signs, and make the statement that you can't let public hunters participate because you don't want too many elk killed, that's going to get you some comments. Additionally, when you state that some of your objectives that led to this proposal are social, and that you are responding to landowners who are frustrated that they couldn't draw tags on their own property. You know, that's going to get you some comments too. Keep in mind, there are many, many ways to kill elk in Montana if you would like to do so. There are many, many ways to move elk off of your property if that is your actual objective. Neither of those objectives necessarily necessitate a tag in the pocket of a landowner for a specific piece of land. Yes, you do need a tag to hunt elk, but if you're motivated to just hunt elk, you aren't bound by that particular piece of private property. I'd like to point out that a tag is an opportunity, not a guarantee. And there are a ton of public land hunters like myself this past season who hardly had the opportunity to get out and hunt, which I bring up because I believe that point gets confused. A valid tag is not the equivalent of a dead elk. If you are a landowner who wishes to kill an elk on your property or kill an elk in general, you are not part of a special minority. You are part of an overwhelming majority. So, I do ask the question, why the special consideration by the state of Montana, or any other state when regarding this beautiful, tasty, hay and alfalfa devouring resource? If it's actually about moving elk off of private property and away from cash crops, that doesn't require a license or a tag at all. My hat is off to Director Warsuch for taking responsibility and going even further. He has approval and is forming a new committee with the intent of finding that equitable resolution, which includes representatives from the Montana Stock Growers Association, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and Montana Wildlife Association, among others. Big thanks to everyone who called, wrote in, and testified in regards to the aforementioned proposal. Keep it up. We need you. 
for all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild access deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get, which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Moving on. Oregon State Police are trying to determine who is behind a rash of wolf poisonings that started in the eastern part of the state earlier this year. In February, the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife received a mortality signal from a wolf collar in Union County, southeast of LeGrand. When state police troopers went out to investigate, they discovered five dead wolves, three male and two female. Investigators later concluded that this was the entire Catherine pack, which started as a mating pair in 2014 consisting of a two-year-old collared male, OR24, and a two-year-old collared female, OR27. This pair left their birth packs and set out on their own. Every year from then on, the two successfully produced pups that became breeding pairs, until OR27 died in April of 2019. All of this very cool data is from the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife website. The other extremely interesting and likely relevant stat for this recent poisoning news is where these wolves chose to hang out. In 2014, when they first got together, collar data showed that the pair stayed almost entirely on public land, 
mostly within the Eagle Cap Wilderness, part of the 2.4 million acre Wallowa-Whitman National Forest, where they weren't likely to get in all that much trouble. The following year, the pack spent just 64% of their time on public land. By 2020, they were on public land only 25% of the time. The corresponding maps show the pack moving steadily westward, away from the National Forest, and into the outskirts of Union, Oregon. You know, Union, Oregon, home of the Eastern Oregon Livestock Show, which at 113 years old is the longest-running livestock show in the Northwest. You know, the holidays are coming up. That's lots of family time. You're going to need knowledge like that. You can thank me later. Without perpetrators in custody, we can't know the motivation behind the poisonings of the Catherine Pack. But those range maps moving almost entirely over private property paint the picture of livestock predation and human conflict as a possible factor. Poisoned wolves were discovered in the same region in March, April, and July of this year with evidence suggesting a single culprit. If you have information on who that culprit or possibly culprits may be, please call the Oregon State Police tip line or write an email to tip at state.or.us and let them know what you got. Oregon's wolf plan has been the focus of intense lobbying and contention since wolf numbers started growing there. In 2009, there were just 14 wolves in Oregon, and that number has grown to at least 173 at the beginning of 2021. The state offers wolf depredation grants that help ranchers put non-lethal deterrents in place, as well as reimbursements for lost or injured livestock and working dogs. All of this can be found at oregon.gov ODA. ODA is Oregon Department of Agriculture. Oregon delisted wolves as an endangered species in 2015, and the state then put into place a process for ranchers in the eastern half of the state where these poisonings took place to apply for lethal control in situations of chronic livestock depredation when non-lethal measures have been unsuccessful at eliminating conflict. In other words, there's a legal way to kill wolves. I suppose our theme this week is social science, and Oregon notwithstanding, if we ever want to find some sort of working social tolerance and wildlife management that will take all sides and interests playing a respectful game and adhering to the laws and biological science of the land. Hunters can legally kill wolves in Idaho. Oregon is right next door. The politics in the two states are different, but I would like to believe there is still a chance for legal hunting in Oregon. In order to get there, we need to stick to the rule book. Poison is nasty stuff. You never know where it will end up. Let the professionals handle it. Go through the proper channels. Moving on, but sticking with the toxicity desk. Two new methods for controlling feral cat populations in Australia recently caught my eye. Australian feral cats either make American feral cats look lazy, or the American cats just don't get the headlines. I'm willing to bet it's the latter. According to Australia's National Environmental Science Program, almost two dozen Australian mammal species have been driven extinct by cat predation, including the pig-footed bandicoot, the lesser bilby, the nullarbore dwarf baitong, the desert rat kangaroo, the broad-faced potteroo, and at least four species of hopping mice, two species of rabbit rat, and the lesser stick-nest rat. If you didn't understand that, let me try my best Australian accent. According to Australia's National Environmental Science Program, 
almost two dozen Australian mammal species have been driven extinct by cat predation, including the pig-footed bandicoot, the lesser bilby, the Nullarbor dwarf baitong, the desert rat kangaroo, the broad-faced potteroo, and at least four species of hopping mice, two species of rabbit rat, and the lesser stick-nest rat. Ah, uh, is that better or just more offensive? I'm sure the Ask Cal emails will let me know. Cats have been murder on Australian bird populations as well. If humans hadn't introduced cats, the Macquarie Island parakeet and buff-banded rail would likely still be with us. In all, feral cats in Australia kill about 2 billion reptiles, birds, frogs, and mammals each year, as well as over a billion invertebrates. And yes, that is billion with a B. So when biologists try to reintroduce populations of threatened small mammals, it's often like feeding them directly into a meat grinder. A 2011 study published in the journal Biological Conservation showed that in 10 Australian mammal reintroduction attempts over the previous decade, 50% failed due to predation. If you want to turn that statistic toward the positive, you could say that out of the last 10 reintroductions, there were 5 successful ones. Anyway, those that succeeded did so only when feral cat control was implemented. But feral cat control is easier said than done. Cats don't fall for the kind of things that work on other feral animals. For example, they very rarely take bait that isn't alive and moving, which is what led scientists at the University of South Australia to develop a poison delivery system that is especially lifelike. The reintroduced animals themselves. Bum bum bum. If that's not enough to make you say, crikey, I don't know what is. The South Australia team developed poison implants the size of grains of rice and embedded them in the skin of the prey species before they were reintroduced in the wild. The implants are coated in biostable polymers so that they won't break down in the host's body. But when that host ends up in a cat's stomach, the acid there dissolves the implant's coating and releases the poison. Correct. Australian scientists turned rodents into suicide bombers. We have talked about secondary toxicity a bunch on the show. Too often, poisoning one animal poisons lots of other animals in the same ecosystem. But the South Australia team had an answer for that, too. The poison in the implant is formulated from native plants, and therefore, native predators adapted to those compounds can eat them without being affected. Feral cats, on the other hand, were introduced too recently to have developed a tolerance, and they die. Kind of like what happens when us folks from way up north of the border travel to, like, Cancun and drink the tap water. A trial population of 30 bilbies with poison implants was recently released in the Arid Recovery Wildlife Preserve in South Australia, which is odd because I am sitting here wondering if I should root for a cat to eat them. And really... We don't want a cat to eat them. We'd want 30 individual cats to eat 30 individual bilbies. You know, more bang for the bilby, as they say down under. A bilby, also known as the rabbit bandicoot, is a marsupial like a kangaroo or a koala, but about the size of a large mouse or small rabbit with, you know, big ears. You may recall from a minute ago that the lesser bilby was wiped out by cats. This happened in the 1950s, so only the greater bilby larger but not that much larger, remains. Bilbies don't drink any water, as they get all of their hydration from other organisms they eat. 
from insects and spiders to seeds and bulbs, and their young only gestate for 12 to 14 days, one of the shortest spans from conception to birth of any mammal on Earth. Okay, right now, you should write that down. So at Christmas dinner, during one of those lulls, you can be like, hey, Grandma, what is the mammal with the shortest span from conception to birth on Earth? You may want to preface that with, no, it's not immaculate conception, depending on your household. It's a war on Christmas! Another fun fact about the bilby is they have a pouch that faces backwards. Why, you may ask? Because they are such prolific burrowers that if the pouch faced forward, they would fill it with dirt. I mean, that's a fun fact. That's a one-two punch for Granny. You're going to tear it up this Christmas season. Just wait. Being the bait can't be fun. However, the study team estimates that for every poison-carrying individual who gets eaten, 700 other native animals will live to fight another day. A real diving-onto-the-grenade type of deal for the greater bilby. The other recent cat control innovation that crossed my radar is truly technology at its finest, a poison-spraying robot known as the Felixer. Like Felix the cat, but kind of with the tone of like, we're going to fix it in like a gangster sort of way. When it comes to naming deadly animal control measures, you really can't beat the Aussies. Remember the pig control formulation, hog gone? Well, if you don't, you do now. This stuff is gold. Anyway, the Felixer is a crate with a poison sprayer and four laser sensors two sensors in a line about 18 inches off the ground, and then one sensor a few inches above and one a few inches below. If an animal bigger than a cat walks by the Felixer, the top sensor prevents the machine from going off. If an animal smaller than a cat walks by, the bottom sensor prevents the machine from going off. But if only the middle two sensors are tripped, it must be a cat, and the Felixer squirts a poison gel onto the cat's fur. The cat then licks its fur, and the poison takes its course. That fur delivery method is key. The poison is much less likely to spread to other animals when it's focused so locally on one particular animal. In the Felixer's first trial, none of the 1,024 non-cat objects, like baytongs, lizards, and cars, were fired upon, and the study concluded that two-thirds of the cat population in the study area were killed by the device over six weeks. Only time will tell if either of these methods will work at scale. And don't worry, the Felixer, I'm sure, is equipped with one of those stickers with, you know, like the toddler falling into the bucket and the line through it, so, you know, cat-sized kids aren't uh, in danger. Before we move on, we obviously give cats a rough time on the show, but it's important to add, it's not the cat's fault. They're a very successful parasite. It's what they do. It's humans who are actually responsible for the kitties. So don't blame them for being them. Blame them for those eyes. Lifeless eyes. Black eyes like a doll's eyes. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. If that initial shock of winter already has your wood supply running low, go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local, knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They'll get you what you need and steal you away from what you don't. And last but not least, 
don't forget to write in at A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at meateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. I read every single email and a lot of the messages too. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.